Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You might have heard about the tragic and infuriating story of a woman shot and killed by a hunter that occurred last week in upstate New York. The shooter, 34-year-old Thomas Jadlowski, believed he saw a deer in a field 200 yards away and shot at the target with a pistol. That single shot taken after sunset, struck 43-year-old Rosemary Bilquist, killing her. Just awful. Now, regardless of one's opinion on the usefulness or ethics of sport hunting, this case raises so many legal questions. And so to explore some of these topics, I'm very pleased to welcome Diane Balkin, Senior Staff Attorney at Animal Legal Defense Fund. Welcome to the program, Diane. Thank you so much for having me. Diane, let's begin by reviewing the facts of this case as we know them so far. Start with this poor victim. Who was she? Where was she? And what was she doing when she was shot? Uh, According to the accounts that I have reviewed, she was a wonderful mother. She volunteered for the church and for hospice. She was simply out walking her two dogs when this horrible event occurred. Hmm. And the shooter, Jedlowski, what did the report say about what he said and did? He indicated that he believed he saw a deer and he fired a shot. When he heard human cries, he went uh, to the victim, found her, apparently tried first aid and called 911, but she died en route to the hospital, which was approximately 30 miles away. So sad. So what do you believe are the main legal questions and issues this case raises? There are two main avenues that can be pursued. Number one, and least important, would be his hunting privileges. Was he licensed to hunt? According to the media accounts, the hunting season had barely started. So number one, did he have a valid hunting license? And together with that privilege comes certain responsibilities. Among them are the necessity for the hunter to know the regulations surrounding that privilege. So if you violate uh, the requirements, there are administrative hearings that can be handled with regard to that licensure. A license can be suspended or revoked. Uh, It's my understanding that he, in fact, violated New York laws about hunting because there are specific hours set forth for deer hunting, and deer hunting can only take place between the hours of sunrise and sunset. According to the accounts, the shooting occurred about 40 minutes after sunset. And so he's looking at liability with relate, uh, that relates to his privilege to hunt. But more importantly, the question is, should there be a criminal sanction for this unlawful and unnecessary taking of a totally innocent victim's life. Do we know if he had a valid hunting license? I would say implicit in the article is that he's likely to have one, Yeah, but it is unclear. And those are really just administrative sanctions. I yeah. reviewed the statutes and there's no real um, penal uh, aspect to it or criminal punishment unless there was a determination made that he was intoxicated at the time, and uh, the articles don't mention that. Diane, this is regarded as an accidental shooting. Aren't hunters supposed to identify their targets with absolute certainty before taking their shot? 
one would certainly hope that that is one of the criteria. The whole point is to not take the life of certainly a human, uh, let alone an animal for which you're not licensed or during hours it's not permitted or with a weapon that is not sanctioned. And uh, this would be actually a good place for me to address the question you had about or or the statement that this was accidental. Mm -hmm. Merely because an event is accidental, it doesn't mean that it is not criminal. Every state has uh, various regulations and sanctions for taking a human life, and the class of the crime depends on the mental state of the person that causes the death of the other human. And in New York, it varies, you know, from murder uh, on down to criminally negligent homicide. And criminally negligent homicide and manslaughter uh, include actions that are reckless or criminally negligent. So an event can be, quote-unquote, accidental, but it can be able to be pursued under the criminal code under the theories of recklessness or negligence. Diane, this morning I read that he was charged with manslaughter and hunting after hours and that he posted bail. Okay. What what uh, can we expect to happen now? So manslaughter is prohibited by law in the state of New York. And what is very clear is that I presume it was a grand jury indictment, opted to indict him for manslaughter rather than criminally negligent homicide. Manslaughter is a more serious crime requiring a greater mental state, the mental state of recklessness. Uh, I am presuming that the prosecutor will pursue this charge on through uh, a jury trial or some type of a negotiated plea or guilty plea. And what penalties go along with involuntary manslaughter? According to New York law, manslaughter is a Class C nonviolent felony. And the possible penalty facing this individual would be anything from no jail and probation up to an average range of sentence from one to two years up to 15 years. The commissioner of New York's Department of Conservation, Basil Segos, said... Today, Mr. Jedlowski is being held accountable for his dangerous and reckless conduct when he shot his neighbor in the dark. Diane, do you think it's appropriate for this commissioner to release that statement at this time? It all depends on what the regulations are in that uh, locality. A lot of this should be referred to the prosecutor's office once an indictment is returned because nobody wants to, you know, jeopardize the further proceedings of the case. However, having said that, there are numerous homicide cases throughout the country that are highly publicized that you can't have not heard about where they can still impanel a fair and impartial jury. How would this case be different if the shot was taken during the day? there wouldn't be a per se violation of the hunting regulations. The fact that he violated the hunting law and that a person who is theoretically trained in a firearm should understand that the reason that this is prohibited after sunset is precisely to avoid these kinds of unnecessary, untimely, and horrible deaths. You don't fire a gun in the dark. In general, do you feel that these so-called accidental shootings of innocent people and or their animals, their companion animals, are prosecuted strongly enough? So much of it depends on the context and the relationship between the shooter and the victim. Uh, Where did it happen? What time of day? What are the variables? Was it dark? Was it in the shooter's home or on their property? Was it out 
in an open field? Is there a pre-existing relationship, etc.? We also all know about uh, shootings of dogs, and it, yeah. it, those are very, very, very difficult cases to analyze, and unfortunately uh, are either under prosecutor or unable to be prosecuted. Wow. Uh, probably the most common area you're going to see an accidental shooting with a human death and are cases that happen all too frequently when a person who owns a firearm, including a law enforcement officer, leaves a firearm not locked and not in a safe place, and a child gets a hold of it and either kills themselves or kills a sibling. Hmm. Uh, it might be beneficial for your listeners to understand that the definition of manslaughter in New York contemplates uh, proving that the shooter recklessly caused the death of another person. And recklessly has a certain legal definition state by state. And in New York, it basically says that uh, a person acts recklessly when he is aware of and consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that a result will occur or that a circumstance exists. And that the fact that they disregard this constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of conduct a reasonable person would observe in the same situation. So basically, they are aware of the dangerousness of a situation, choose to disregard it. The average person would not do so, and it's fraught with danger just by definition. Interesting. Uh, and and a, a very good and easy explanation of a person acting, acting recklessly, which also kind of is analogous to this case, is somebody that plays Russian roulette, where you put a bullet in one cylinder of a revolver and you spin the cylinder and you pull the trigger. You know the danger exists. You know yeah. a reasonable pers person would be aware of the danger and avoid any horrible consequences. He knows he's got a pistol. He knows it's loaded. He knows it's a pistol that is has enough velocity to kill a deer. We're not talking about a little 22 handgun. We're talking about a pistol that he uses for hunting. He knew it was loaded. He knew he aimed to kill a living creature. Right. So you can attribute the proof of recklessness precisely to the conduct he engaged in that evening. Very good. Thanks for explaining that to us. Any final comments? Sure. I appreciate the fact that the prosecuting authority took this seriously enough to take it to the grand jury, and the grand jury indicted for manslaughter. This is an appropriate start to resolving this horribly tragic event. Senior Staff Attorney with Animal Legal Defense Fund, Diane Balkin, thank you very much. Thank you, Lori. More animals today, right after the break. <laughs> The holidays are here, and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over, and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets. And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach. And use extra care with candles, or avoid using them at all. Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. 
Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals, so make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. I'm so pleased to have Lori Marino, uh, Executive Director, Camilla Center, and she has co-authored a new paper, a scientific paper called The Psychology of Cows, and you don't hear that every day. Hi, Lori. Hi, Peter. Okay. How are you? Great. And, And I'm so pleased to be speaking with you about this paper. It's, first of all, it's pretty lengthy and detailed, and it is a peer-reviewed paper, right? Yes, that's and, right. Uh, your co-author is who on, on this? Uh, my co-author is Kristen Allen. Yeah. And she is a doctoral student uh, at uh, Florida State, and uh, it was a pleasure working with her on this. So why did you do this? How did this start? Well, you know, this is another paper in a, in a series um, for the Someone Project that is a joint project between Camilla and Farm Sanctuary. And the whole point of this project is to uh, educate the public and the scientific community about who farmed animals are. And we've done a number of papers, uh, one on pigs, one on chickens, and this is the third in our series, and this is on cows. And um, we have a white paper on the Farm Sanctuary website where people can take, you know, can look at all of that scientific information that we amassed in our peer review paper and see it in a more digestible format. Um, but all of it is based upon all of the science that we that tells us who cows are. Now, most of what we know about cows or what the general public knows about cows comes from industry, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. Uh, most people see cows um, in in the light of them being commodities, you know, uh, things, things that are manufactured, in a sense, um, that you eat. And uh, obviously they're not. They're living, sentient, intelligent beings, and they are a who, not a what. Um, and uh, we wanted to bring to light uh, some of the evidence for that. Uh, of course, it's obvious. Obvious that they are, but but uh, what we did is we decided to to use the scientific data um, to to bring it that all together, so that the objective uh, view of cows and the scientific view of cows was brought to the forefront. So, in this research, you did not conduct any experiments; you reviewed all the available literature. That's right. We didn't conduct any experiments ourselves. This was a review paper. We brought together the best of all of the peer-reviewed literature on cows, and we organized it and uh, provided, uh, uh, you know, 
almost like um, a biography of of who cows are, what do we know about their emotions and their psychology, their social complexity, and and some of the ways that they're very intelligent that most people don't talk about. And I think the, the main point that we wanted to make with this, which I think we made through the science, is that, you know, cows are not just plodding, slow creatures who just eat grass. Uh, they are intelligent, complex, caring uh, beings with individual personalities. You know, it's heartbreaking when you see the truckload of cows going on the highway, you know where they're going. And then exactly. you know, once in a while you hear a story of one of them escaping and it becomes yes, you know, a yes. real story. And uh, can we yeah. read into when this happens, is it just a fearful cow escaping? What, what do you think is going through the mind or emotions of, of that individual? Well, you know, that's a good question. It's so hard to really tell. But obviously this is an individual who knows that this is not a good situation. They have to get away from it. And I think they really are running for their life. I, I don't think it is a stretch to say that they realize that um, wherever they are, they're not going to a good place, and, and they're trying to run to some semblance of safety. They So, I mean, when I talk about it, I do talk about it as running for their life, because when they are you know, putting sanctuaries and are safe and happy, you know, they their whole demeanor changes and, and they realize they're in a good place. Uh, so, so these animals know uh, what's happening when they're on that truck going to the slaughterhouse. They may not know the specifics of it, but uh, you can bet that they know that uh, this is this is not a good situation to be in, and they're very unhappy and very stressed. Paint a little picture for listeners who haven't had the chance to spend any time with cows. Let's say one visits a sanctuary and sees them in that happy sort of state. What are they doing? What they're doing is uh, all kinds of things. So if you go up to Farm Sanctuary and visit the cows that are rescued there, you'll see various things. You'll see cows, of course, eating grass and browsing. You'll see cows lying down and relaxing. You'll see them interacting with each other. They actually do have friends and uh, bonds. You'll see them with their children, which is something you never get to see uh, if they if they do have a, a calf um, you see them exercising their autonomy their their choice as to how to spend uh, their their day and it is so relaxed uh, you know their eyes show that they're very relaxed there's no giant wide-eyed you know expression of fear with tears coming down it's a very relaxed expression all their body posture tells you that they they know that they're fine it's 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 you know it's it's quite obvious um and you know it's a really beautiful thing to see yeah uh the paper states a few times that more research is needed what sort of uh research can be conducted ethically on on cows that we could gain more insight 
think that, you know, cows are so interesting, as are many other farmed animals, that, you know, people have all kinds of questions about them. And as long as it's done non-invasively and it's done in a context that, you know, keeps the animals protected and gives them some choice in the matter, then, then I think uh, that's great. This is not to say that we, shouldn't, we should stop all research on them, but that research has to be done respectfully. And I think the best kind of place to do research like that is in a sanctuary setting where the animals are relaxed and uh, where they're in a more naturalistic setting. Well, thanks, Lori. Reading this paper makes me want to go back and spend more time at a sanctuary, and I hope everyone has a chance to do that. It's really, uh, my, it's really life-changing, isn't it? it? It really is. Everyone has to go to a sanctuary and just find out who these beings are for themselves and if they find out who they are, they're going to have a different view of, of them. So it's, it is life-changing, indeed. So the paper is psycho- The Psychology of Cows. It the Psychology is of Cows. In Animal Behavior and Cognition. That's and, right. And you are and Lori Marino. Thank, yes. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Animals Today tip of the day has to do with kittens. If you find a litter of newborn or very young kittens, do not assume the mother has abandoned them. If they are not clearly in distress, their mother is probably hunting for food or in the process of moving them. She may even be hiding nearby until you've gone. You should leave the kittens alone for a couple hours and stay far enough away so the mother feels safe to return. If she doesn't return and you're absolutely convinced they are abandoned, contact your local cat rescue group and ask for advice about your particular situation. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. Welcome back. Well, just recently I had the distinct pleasure of visiting the National Geographic Encounter Ocean Odyssey attraction, which is new and in Manhattan, near Times Square, in the Times Square area. And so I'm very pleased to welcome Lisa Truitt from SPE Partners, where she is Chief Creative Officer and Partner. Hey, Lisa. Hey, how are you? I am just great. It is really wonderful to connect with you uh, so we can learn about this uh, wonderful new National Geographic attraction. First, tell us a little bit about you. Who are you and uh, what's your relationship with Nat Geo? So I have a very long history at Nat Geo. I started there a year out of college and spent almost three decades there. Um, At the end, I I made movies. I traveled all over the world. I, I directed documentaries and uh, IMAX movies and feature documentaries and all kinds of things for NetGeo. And when I left, I did not fall far from the tree. I joined an outside company to bring the National Geographic brand to life in an immersive attraction in New York. Okay, so you were uh, involved with this from the onset, from the conception, or did they uh, recruit you to uh, help flesh out an idea? A little bit of both. They uh, came to me. They had a vision, and they came to me when I was at National Geographic, and I fell in love with the vision. It was the kind of thing that I'd been thinking about separately, and I 
did the deal to brand this endeavor and to work with them to bring it to life from the inside. And then about a year later, it felt like I wanted to really be more involved and and it was a wonderful relationship. And so I kind of jumped to the other side. Okay. So what is Encounter Ocean Odyssey? Uh, It is an immersive walkthrough attraction. Our idea was to bring to life, using the latest technology, the worlds of National Geographic, to allow guests to step through that yellow border and into the world of National Geographic on the best day ever. So you'd be able to see things that even those of us who traveled the world for National Geographic and saw these things firsthand, we might see them over the course of years or months. We brought all these sort of greatest hits of the natural world together in one place to allow guests to feel as if they've taken that journey, too. This is a walkthrough attraction. It is in Times Square. How did the team uh, choose where it was going to be placed? You could have put this anywhere. You could have put it in Orlando or Los Angeles or Vancouver. Well, that's true, but I, I think New York likes to think of itself as the crossroads of the world, right? And we, we agree. So you're bringing in people from all over the world. Um, it's a tightly packed city in a way. People have sort of described my uh, New York, Manhattan, as a microcosm of a coral reef in that it's this dense community with the vibrancy and and lots of um, entertainment options going on and lots of tourism, lots of locals. uh, And it felt like the place to be. You know, there's that that saying, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. It felt like where we wanted to launch this new take, new spin, new version of National Geographic, if you will. So one of the primary features is a series of rooms, I'll call them. You correct me if I'd describe this uh, inadequately, uh, Mm -hmm. where you indeed uh, experience these very immersive visual and sound uh, and interactive things going on, and you gently walk through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good description. It's um, We wanted you to have a different experience awaiting you every time you turned a corner. So you probably noticed that no two rooms are the same. It's not like we have one media trick and then we repeat that over and over and take you to different places. Every room, we're sort of calling on a different sense, whether it's your sense of hearing, your sense of sight, your sense of play, your sense of touch. We're using all of those and you, you each, each scene that you journey through is different and you interact with it in a different way, just as it would be in the real world. Now, it is a lot of fun, but I imagine that there are some deeper goals in this project. Absolutely. So we wanted to lead with entertainment because we think by playing and experiencing something, you uh, come to love it. But we wanted it to be entertainment with substance and purpose. We're very much mission-driven. We very much care about the world and the ocean and that the more people appreciate and love the natural places of our world, the more we're all going to become better stewards of these places. So underlying this is that sense of purpose, but also a real deep grounding in science. Um, Every detail of this thing has been vetted by one 
and usually more, usually sometimes dozens of scientists have reviewed every detail from colors to thin shapes of every animal that you see uh, to species, everything. So it's got a couple of, couple of underlying principles, science and purpose. And as I'm walking from a room to room, I'm wondering, what am I looking at here? Is this actual video? Is this computer generated? Or is it a combination of things? Or can you reveal? Yeah, absolutely. So there are there is a lot of National Geographic imagery in the space that we've um, you know bedecked on the walls in various places. The moving imagery is mostly animated. We hired an Academy Award winning animation company that is known for creating photo real animation. And the reason it's animated is that the size of our screens and the way we're projecting technology on walls and floors and sometimes on ceilings, real footage that you get in a normal camera and you take underwater couldn't fill those screens and you couldn't interact with it in the way we wanted to enable you to interact with it. So to give you this sort of immersive um, firsthand experience, we had to create the footage with different characteristics. And we also needed to create it with ultra high resolution. In one scene, we have an ultra high frame rate. Um, And we wanted to then pack in all these realistic animal behaviors in one scene. So you, they're all realistic. They all happen in the wild. But you, the odds of seeing them all on one scuba dive or, you know, even one trip are minimal to none. But we put them all in so you could actually see sort of the greatest hits of these places that you're journeying through. That could only be accomplished by animating and pulling together the research that enabled us to script out what would happen in the real world. Lisa, one thing I found especially wonderful is this provides an alternative to having live captive animals. Yeah, and, and we too are just thrilled that we could allow people to see these animals and experiencing these animals without having them in captivity and taking them out of their natural habitats. These animals, you know, sharks and 50-foot humpback whales and dolphins, they don't belong in captivity. They're smart, they're social, they have complex lives. And you put them in captivity and you've, you've really kind of put them in a, in a cell. They've, they've lost their lives. And, and there are other ways, fortunately. Technology has now brought us to a point where people can experience these animals in a very real way but without putting them in captivity. And it's just wonderful to be able to take that leap forward. One element that I think worked very well is that you end up in sort of a gallery of interactive stations where you can educate yourself on a variety of topics and you can linger as long as you want or if the kids are getting hungry and have enough, you can go. So you can make this a briefer experience or stretch it out as long as you want. I think that's really uh, smart. Yeah, we call that Exploration Hall because we want everybody who's taken this journey to have that sense of exploration that inspired us and fueled um, our creativity. And so that's your free space to play and explore. And most of the things in that space are still a little bit game-based and, and a little bit fun. And, um, and yeah, people spend a lot of time in there. 
There's a lot of information to be absorbed. People have a lot of questions about what they experienced. Well, it's just a very special addition to the possibility of learning about the oceans. And uh, it's just such a success. I imagine people are talking about it all over the place, aren't they? Thank you. Yes, we have been overwhelmed um, with support and enthusiasm and, and really a sense that this is, kind of, this is a new kind of entertainment. People come in and they say, I, I don't even know what to call this. I haven't experienced anything like this before. So we're, we're having a lot of fun with it and we're thrilled. We're so glad you got to enjoy it. Oh, me too. And I'm uh, pleased to uh, report it. Lisa Truitt, thank you so much. She's Chief Creative Officer and Partner at SPE Partners. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Lori, I wanted to read for you an email you may find somewhat interesting, okay? Okay. Uh, It has to do with uh, my CD player. Your CD player? Yes. Okay. uh, So before reading this, I do want to state for listeners that, you know, some of us aging audiophiles still like our CDs and like our CD players. And, uh, you know, the quality of sound that you get from a CD is better than MP3 and better than most of your free all of your free streaming services. So if you've got a bunch of CDs and they're now 10, 20, 30 years old, you don't really want to part with them. And so there is a bunch of us who like to listen with higher quality CD players. Okay, not your little cheapies from Best Buy, but a real good quality player. And we still enjoy our CDs, right? So I happen to have one of these high quality CD players. It was a pretty sizable investment made about five or six years ago, and it's been serving me well. But recently, the drawer is not functioning properly, and it started getting stuck, and I'd have to eject multiple times to get it to pop out and coax it to come out or drag it out. And I knew this was trouble. And finally, it was unopenable, and it's got one of my Eagle CDs in there, and it can't be opened. So I called the store who sold me this CD player and ultimately got connected with the factory authorized repair center. And of course, it's out of warranty, so I'm going to have to pay, but that's okay. I want the person who can do this well for my for my precious little CD player. So I ship it out there, and uh, Lori, uh, here's what he says. Okay. I found three contributing factors to the tray problem. One, an abundance of fine fur throughout the mechanism, in parentheses, cat, question mark. <laughs> The fur has embedded itself in the grease on some of the moving parts and gears. Number two, a stretched rubber band that connects the tray motor to the main gear. And three, general wear and tear of the transport mechanism. He continues, I did my best to clean out the cat fur and I ordered a new belt, which should arrive this week. If the transport's still sluggish, I'll have to replace it. I'll give you pricing soon. 
You always want to blame the cats. Well, you I always do. want to blame the cats. This is proof, though. I think I'm totally justified. How does he know? Maybe it's it's carpet fuzz. How does he know it's well, cat? He's fur? a professional guy. He's he put it under the microscope and decades see of DNA analysis. I I just don't get it. You don't think this is cat fur? I think he's better? trying to blame it on cats, like you do. Well, listen. Um, you don't need a smoking gun here. You've got one cat who pretty much lives in the room with that CD player and this cat sheds and this cat has left cat hair and fur all over the room. Does so this guy not... know does this guy know we have cats? No, he doesn't know. No clues. He just looked at it and said cat. So uh, there's so many lessons here. First of all, yes, we audiophiles, we are a little crazy about protecting our gear, but this is why this happens. It's, it's a travesty. But maybe he blames anything that he can't determine what it is on cat fur. So cat fur is like, that's his go-to excuse? Yeah, maybe. That's your go-to excuse sometimes. Well, there's a reason for Here's my evidence. So I think the evidence is pretty strong. And uh, you want me to have him send us a sample and then we can uh, match it? We can. Maybe it's one of my sweaters fluff. So based upon this uh, possibly expensive uh, little story here, uh, we'll see how much it costs to fix this. And it's annoying because I'm without my CD player because you won't let me get another one. I want to make a little appeal to uh, spouses of audiophiles for the world. And that is, you know, give us a little space. Stop being so harsh. If we want to buy another CD player, let us buy another CD player. And if we want a separate room where no animals are allowed, we should have another, a man cave, a garage, a basement, no animals allowed. Yes, you can get another pair of speakers. I love you. Everything will be a lot happier if you guys just back off and let your spouses, usually husbands, do their thing so they can enjoy their music and not worry about animals and all your other tchotchkes and stuff that's getting in the way of their sound. How's that? Well, why don't you just grow up and leave me and the cats alone? And if the cat wants a nice warm spot on your amplifier, no, I'm going to let him have it. Oh, okay. We're going to have to work this out later. (laughs) But truly, the issue of uh, animals and the stereophiles, there's a little uh, battleground going on there in case you didn't know about it. And here's a little example. Lori, you know, recently I spoke with Camilla Fox about abuses by wildlife services. Well, I've got a little bit more of my discussion with her and it's pretty interesting. I want to play it for you. And it has to do with how one community is using non-lethal methods to deter wildlife. We're speaking with Camilla Fox, founder and executive director of Project Coyote, and uh, she mentioned to me recently what is going on in Marin County, California, uh, regarding the use of non-lethal methods to uh, manage or control wildlife. Is that correct, Camilla? Yeah, so um, in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco, our Board of Supervisors ended the contract with USDA Wildlife Services back in 2000, and they did this as a result of a grassroots campaign, and that campaign started with controversy over USDA Wildlife Services' use of a deadly poison called Compound 1080, and this is a poison that was banned by the Nixon administration because of its dangers to non-target animals, in particular threatened and endangered species, and then it was brought back for use in what's called a livestock protection collar, and I should mention it was brought back under the Reagan administration for use in this collar that essentially is put around the necks of 
uh, lambs and goats, and the collars are filled with two bladders of poison, this compound 1080. There's enough poison in those two bladders to kill uh, up to nine adult men. Very deadly poison causes tremendous suffering and pain to animals that ingest it. And so this grassroots campaign started back in 1996, and it ultimately led to a ban on that poison and also on several types of traps used for commercial and recreational trapping in California. And then locally in Marin, it led to our supervisors uh, ending that contract with Wildlife Services and instead adopting a non-lethal program. This program has now been in place for 17 years. We have uh, almost 100% participation by sheep ranchers in Marin County, and it emphasizes the use of non-lethal methods. So it's a cost-share program, and it helps ranchers adopt methods such as livestock guard dogs, llamas, which is a, uh, can be a very effective um, livestock guarding animal, better fencing, um, night corrals, a whole host of non-lethal methods that have proven very effective in reducing conflicts between predators and livestock. So we're very pleased with this program. Project Coyote is actually working on a film about it so that we can scale it up and show other communities that there is an alternative to lethal predator control under wildlife services and that it can be effective and embraced by the community. Are ranchers in Marin different than ranchers elsewhere? Can you grow this? We definitely believe we can, and in fact, we have, um, there are several counties now in California that have ended the contract with Wildlife Services. We have several communities that have adopted our coyote-friendly community program, which assists uh, communities with living not just with coyotes, but with other predators. So we definitely believe it's scalable, and for that reason, um, we're working on this film, and, and we've had many counties across the West express interest in it. That's great. We can't wait to see it. Thanks, Camilla Fox. Project Coyote. Thank you, Peter. Great to be on your show. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.